0: Graham. Radio you can believe in. Mike Graham speaking common
1: sense unto the nation. On talk radio
2: and welcome to the independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on the home of common sense and the world headquarters of the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It is, of course Talk radio. We'll never tire of saying that, by the way, because there's plenty to talk about this morning. The week has started well, it would seem, with the release from quarantine of Novak Djokovic, the world's greatest tennis player. Finally, the Australian government, which has been acting in a very petulant manner, I'd have to say, has seen sense after effectively holding him hostage over the weekend. And I don't care what anybody says about whether or not he was being uh, put into a reasonably good hotel, uh, that he was being given the right amount of food, that he was all right, he was allowed to do any exercise he wanted to do. None of that, right? So, barring any major accidents and one of those at the moment is that he may or may not have been arrested again hopefully that's not the case he should be playing in the australian open and you know what if it turns out that he doesn't play in the australian open as a result of something that the australian government has done i think he should sue the hell out of them basically Uh, and also the wta uh, the world tennis authority should take away from australia the actual rights to be part of the grand slam family just say sorry you are no longer a major tournament you are petty bourgeois knock about raiders of freedom and what you are actually doing is locking people away instead of allowing them to do their business and do their jobs absolutely outrageous meanwhile here all the evidence is uh, that there's pointing to the fact that the coronavirus is on the wane even the nhs bosses are saying they are getting through january without tipping into crisis when have you ever heard them say that before they've never said it not even before omicron or coronavirus had ever been heard of and if they're being optimistic you know things might just have changed the dire predictions from sage about 75,000 deaths and millions of infections have simply failed to materialize. And the doom and gloom emanating from Sir Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer who told us everything he knew about the Omicron variant was bad, effectively killing off the Christmas party season turned out to be completely wrong. So in what other world is the question today? Would this man still be employed? And when is he going to come out publicly to apologize for misleading the nation? I mean, I for one would like to know when Downing Street is going to put Chris Whitty out there with his little lectern, with his little slideshow to say I made a mistake, I got it wrong, I'm terribly terribly sorry I am now forthwith resigning my position as Chief Medical Officer of the United Kingdom or of England or whatever it is that his job is, right? Because here's a guy Who has completely and utterly misread the situation. And you might say, well, Christmas and New Year were okay. Well, they weren't okay if you run a restaurant. They weren't okay uh, if you run any kind of hospitality business. And they certainly weren't okay if you were in Scotland or Wales or possibly even Northern Ireland. So Chris Whitty has a lot to answer for. I want to see him telling the truth and explaining to us how he managed to get it so completely and utterly wrong. He completely misread the data and he also willfully did not uh, pay any attention to what was going on in South Africa. Next slide, please. You might say, next chief medical officer please 0344 499 1000 up first this morning we're talking to Craig McKinley Tory MP for South Thanet, for the latest from the backbenches, where they can at least say they won a small victory by getting the Prime Minister to stick to his guns before New Year over lockdown and I'm delighted to announce that Piers Morgan is back in the fold he's obviously been listening to me as well his first column in the Sun tells Boris Johnson to pull his socks up, stop being a shambles or make way for someone else all things that I've been saying for months it's good that he's on the same page, 0344 We're also talking rising prices with Mark Littlewood from the IEA. And Professor Hugh Pennington is here as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The
0: Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: Now, there can only be one good thing to come from the second Monday of January, and that, of course, is uh, that here we are back at Talk Radio, back with the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's a little bit gloomy out there, it's a little bit dull, it's a little bit cold, but nevertheless, we enter the week of January that we are currently in, the 10th of January, with some enthusiasm, uh, and not least, I think, a fair amount of optimism. Let's talk to Craig McKinley, Conservative MP uh, for South Thanet, and also Chairman of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, which is something we're going to get on to a little bit later on in the show. Craig, a very good uh, morning to you, and a happy new year. Nice to see you again, Mike. Yes, yeah. indeed. Thank you very much, indeed. I mean, I don't know if you share my optimism for the start of the new year, but 2022, certainly from a year ago, is looking an awful lot better, isn't it?
0: Well, it is. I mean, if we're focusing on Omicron and all the rest of it, all the data and everything is looking better and good. And I'm very pleased to have been part of that rebellion, uh, which my I hope in some way to, to making sure that uh, we didn't go further down the rabbit hole uh, before Christmas or after Christmas, so yeah, I, I think we've been vindicated on that one. So, yeah, let's get some optimism back into Britain again. I want to be at the forefront of that. Unfortunately, lots of rows down the road, not least of what you just mentioned on the whole uh net zero cost of living, which I'm very much part of. Yes, this. very um, much. Well, we'll let's well,
2: let's, let's park that just for the moment and we'll get on to it because my concern today. Craig is about the advice that was handed out to Boris Johnson. Thank goodness your rebellion played a part. Thank goodness Boris actually held the line, did not put on more restrictions for New Year. But I would say this, that effectively uh, Sir Chris Whitty, as he is now known, killed off the Christmas party season by that one statement that he made, where he said, you know, we don't know much about Omicron, but what we do know is all bad. He made out that somehow we should be uh, very careful about our socialising commitments that particular week. And as as a result, loads and loads of organisations, big parties were cancelled. Loads of people's plans for going out went into the dust, and so therefore, lots of people lost an awful lot of money. Now, I would like to see Chris Whitty answering for that, please. I'd like to see him in front of a lectern at Downing Street saying, "I got it wrong and I'm sorry." Well, I, you know, I'm one of those politicians that will always put my hand up if I get it wrong. I
0: think it's refreshing. Uh, that you do, you know, we don't do it right all the time, uh, yeah. probably far from it. I mean, if I get it right 50% of the time, I'm I'm quite grateful. But yes, it, we, we've seen this throughout all of the waves, all of the modelling, they've always been far too pessimistic. And then we're, when real life comes through, none of the uh, forecasts have ever been held to be right. Uh, now, it's a little bit like being a weather forecaster, one of the only jobs in the world you can get wrong on a daily basis and keep your job. Mm. But... Um, uh, you know, where, where do we go from this? We, we need better modelling. We need more going into the, uh, the you know, the, the grand spreadsheets or whatever they are so that we get a bit of reality out of it. Now, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm not trying to defend the man. I, I, I won't. But, I mean, all the modellers have got it wrong. But we live now in a very precautionary principle world where, you know, the thoughts are if you're over-cautious, you are overcautious, you can not be criticised. Now, you know, from the government's point of view, If they made a decision that was completely wrong, you and others and the whole media would be against them saying, oh, well, you should have done this earlier all
2: the rest of it well actually so, i'm not one you know, of those on actually, no actually craig i'm not one of those and i think all those journalists who say oh you should have done this quicker or you should have done that harder or why are you not doing it worse than we were seeing you know i i take no no advice from them and i certainly do not encourage them to continue to ask the sort of useless and meaningless questions they did ask for about two years every time they were sitting in front of the prime minister but i think it's enti- entirely right to say look How about we don't necessarily change the way we do the modelling, but how about we use a completely different set of people because they haven't got anything right. And they scared the bejesus out of people with this Omicron variant and they willfully ignored all of the information, the data they had from South Africa, which they could have used to their advantage, which turned out to be completely correct and just as applicable to Britain as it was to the Republic of South Africa.
0: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we were in a good position because South Africa had, had it two, three, four weeks before us. And, you know, it's a, it's a, on medical matters, it's, a, it's an advanced nation. So we were getting good data out of there. And that weighed very heavily on my decision before Christmas to oppose these measures that the government was bringing forward. Mm. We then had many of the... Uh, the You know, the scientists and medical officers, almost gold plating, which worried me because it's, uh, you know, the classic thing is uh, advisers advise and ministers decide. Hmm. But we did see a certain amount of gold plating going on. And you're quite right. How many hundreds of millions were lost over that Christmas period? I heard it in my constituency of South Thanet. Office parties being cancelled, people just not turning up. uh, And in one case, uh, a very nice little bar that I often frequent. He didn't even bother opening at all because he just thought it's just not worthwhile. So the utterance of a few words, mm. misguided and uh, misplaced, can cost hundreds of millions. And this has characterized the whole process. All we have put into the formulaic is the medical bit. But I'm afraid there's more to it than the medical bit. It is the economic bit. It is the uh, the mental health issues, uh, the loss of other NHS services uh, when people are not getting diagnosed for, with cancer and other, and, and other ailments, which could have been solved. These will be the dark side of these very poor and frightening and alarmist um, uh, you know, ways that they've operated over the last year. We've yes. got to get out of that track. And I feel as optimistic as you, Mike. I think we are now over the worst uh, in many ways. I, I mean, I had my lateral flow test this morning, uh, negative. But I think this this one's going to get us just as you know the common cold will get you. And we've got to deal with this as a new norm and get on with life. Because it's not only this one. We've been perhaps fortunate with Omicron. It's fairly benign. But we have to ask ourselves a serious question. If something more serious happens, yet another variant, there's bound to be one, uh, they always happen. What are we going to do if it's more serious? Go back down the rabbit hole? We can't do that. No. We can't no, afford it. Not. No, And that's where... I, I, Children's is I, education is being destroyed.
2: Yeah, and this is what I mean, Craig, that, you know, the one thing we do know uh, about what lockdowns cause is they cause untold misery, they cause um, wreckage of the National Health Service, they cause all manner of unemployment, they cause all manner of economic uh, hardship, and they cause, actually, the nation to become much more unhealthy, both physically and mentally. Whereas with all of the other stuff that goes on, Omicron, you know, coronavirus, people getting sick, some uh, uh, dying, most of them recovering. What we do know uh, is that the far bigger harm, it seems to me, is from the lockdown.
0: Oh, I think now the, the, the,
2: you know, the scales are
0: balanced elsewhere now. Uh, Omicron is, and, and the current COVID is probably the least of our worries in people's long term mm-hmm. health uh, and uh, the health of the economics of this nation. No doubt about that. The scales have now changed. We've got to do something differently. We've got to live with this virus. And, I you mean, know, how ridiculous that we've got Wales, particularly loads of stories coming out of Wales, banning Parkrun. Uh, you'd think that would be a good enterprise, get people out and about in the fresh air. No, banned, banned. Uh, and the ridiculousness about Chester Football Club had oh. a, apparently a visit from the police to say, oh, well, you, you can't... Uh, have your fixtures, because even though you're an English registered company, you're just on the border and your stadium is just into the border of <laughs> Wales.
2: I mean, this it's, is, I mean, it's only, it's only part hot. It's only part of the stadium that's in Wales as well. I mean, I've, if I'd been uh, running that football club, I would have said, thanks very much indeed. You appear to be standing at the entrance to the club, uh, which is in England. So get lost. That's what I'd said to them.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, I think this then gets us into other debates about you know the devolution settlement. How on earth within one country called the United Kingdom, have we got into this mad situation where we have you know different rules, literally one step over a border into another mm. uh, you know, de- devolved assembly? Well they're only doing it because they can. And I would say, yeah, this is what socialism looks like. It's about control. And they've exercised that to the max. But, yeah. uh, you know, we've got where we are with devolution. But I think there's got some some messages there that we need to heed. As mm. yes, it's been very sensible, it's been completely ridiculous. And, you know, England, I've been uh, worried about we've gone over the top at times. But where we currently are is in a better and more sensible place than Wales, Scotland, the Northern Ireland.
2: Well, I mean, when you see Chris Hobson, who's not exactly known for being, um, you know, uh, reckless with his statements about the NHS, he's from NHS providers, he's now saying he believes the front line will hold. He's now saying he believes the NHS is going to be able to weather any crisis. It's not going to be a problem. Um, And for him to say that really, I think is quite significant. The other thing uh, that I saw Mm -hmm. over the weekend, Craig, which I thought was quite significant, was that uh, apparently we are the country in the world that has the most natural immunity from covid because something like 98% of the population have got, uh, you know, either a vaccine or have had the disease, which is an extraordinary figure.
0: Well, it is. We've done very, very well. There's no doubt about it. Our vaccination, rollout, out the booster programme, it's all been very, very positive. Uh, and so we're in a different place from many other countries. And I think we're seeing that in some of the numbers around the world. Uh, many European, you know, friend friendly nations are having a rates of infection that are far beyond ours because mm. they have had more vaccine hesitancy. I know there's a debate raging um, amongst some about vaccines. Let let I'm a full proponent of them at all
2: against this. Craig, let me just stop Sorry, you there. Because we might, yeah. we're, we're just, we're just I, I, losing I, I, a bit of your signal there. Let's, let's uh, just take a little break because uh, we'll come back and talk about net zero. Um, Craig, of course, is with the net zero scrutiny group. He's one of those people like me uh, who is very uh, absolutely and utterly doubtful about what it is that net zero is going to do to benefit this country. We're seeing already massive energy price rises. We're seeing and we're going to be talking about this later on with Mark Littlewood from the IEA, massive inflation. Prices going up by 10% in a year, which is absolutely untenable. People won't be able to afford it. People need some help. And we need to get from this government some assurance that the economy is not going to spiral out of control. This is Talk Radio.
1: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: Uh, we're talking to Craig McKinley, Conservative MP for South Thanet. He's also chairman of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. Craig, one of the things that keeps coming up uh, in polls about the Tory party and, and in my own sort of anecdotal research is that people say as long as Boris has his obsession with greenery and making everything more green and more expensive and, you know, saving the planet and all of that, it's moving further and further away from conservative traditional voting. Um, and a lot of people are saying we're not going to vote Tory if this is going to continue. Where are you on the whole Net Zero thing?
0: Uh, in, in the camp of extreme criticism, Mike, I mean, I, we all want to leave this planet in a better place than we found it. That would be all of us, each and every one of us. But on all of these new proposals to uh, get to net zero by 2050, I have got some very simple measures of, of which I will be judging them. Uh, and that is, do they provide energy security? Do they provide affordability? Are they practical? Does it not upset our lives so much it it no longer becomes worth living? Uh, Does it protect the vulnerable? And is there a better way? Mm. Now, we're currently living through, in my view, some of those deficiencies of this net zero dash. We're almost behaving as if we're trying to get to net zero tomorrow, not 2050. And we're seeing, particularly in the rundown of our uh, Domestic gas extraction, which is down 50% since the early 2000s. In 2001, we were actually exporting gas. Mm. You know, nice and useful for balance of payments, very good at deriving tax. No, we've slashed that by 50%, and we're now relying on imports. Now, the whole concept of giving billions of pounds and euros to Putin's Russia so he can have more money to develop weapons on our borders seems to me the geopolitics of the madhouse. When we have been gifted by dear Mother Earth a great gift, and that is a lot of gas in the UK, either in the North Sea or domestically through potential fracking. Now, we're seeing the effects of these uh, policies at the moment with what is just coming around the corner uh, on the 1st of April, massive increases in our domestic fuel bills, uh, up to 51%, so it's reckoned. But it doesn't end there. Um, Businesses are not uh, protected behind the energy price cap. They're paying the high energy prices right here, right now, and that feeds into the price of everything you buy transport everything that we do in life and we are uh, you could argue that that is having a major effect on the uh, cost of living crisis and inflation we can do very little about the here and now because we've had a two decades of failure on energy policy we've finally woken up to uh, what nuclear energy could do to us or for us um, but we have to go further in my view for this Interim energy. Let's treat gas as an interim energy. Uh, it's going to be with us for a generation. For heaven's sake, let's use our own first. Yes. Now, the government and no doubt and the Labour Party, I know, are coming up with all sorts of mechanisms to think about how we can ameliorate this uh, cost of living problem that's going to land on the first of April. Now, yeah, you can cut that cake whichever way you like. Uh, it'll all cost the taxpayer fundamentally at the end of the day money. Uh, I'm in favour of, of cutting VAT which also was going to be a Brexit dividend, if you remember, back Mm. in 2016 on the Vote Leave campaign uh, that I certainly espoused. But we should be temporarily, well, temporarily permanently, in my view, would be better, but temporarily suspending the green levies on our energy and let's look in the medium term to our own energy security, getting rid of price volatility, getting more storage, and that means domestic production. That isn't rocket science That, to me, seems like common sense.
2: Well, it absolutely is, because nobody really has ever set out why net zero uh, is, in fact, achievable, one, and also desirable, two, uh, because it doesn't really appear to have any... uh particular benefit uh, to the populace of this nation, uh, or indeed the populace of the world. But it's just become this kind of trendy thing that you sign up to and say, oh, yeah, well, of course, we're in favour of that. But as you say, you know, the energy prices are going through the roof. We're paying a green levy. And all of that green levy, by the way, doesn't go anywhere good. It just goes into the pockets of some very wealthy individuals who happen to run green energy companies. And what I'd also like to see, Craig, is um, uh, the the, the Prime Minister address the issue of inflation. We're going to be talking later on in the show to Mark Littlewood from the I because we're talking about price rises uh, of, of the order of around 10%. You know, your the pound in your pocket, as we used to call it, uh, isn't going as far as it used to, particularly the supermarket.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, going back to the, the desirability of net zero, as I say, I, you know, nobody wants to leave this planet in a better place than we found it than I. But let's put this into context. The UK produces 1% of global CO2, and you've got China, uh, India, Indonesia going gangbusters for building new coal stations because they have domestic coal. Uh, Just last week, China put on stream a one gigawatt uh, coal station, the biggest in the world, Mm. and they they, they continue to build these. So I'm afraid to say if if Britain was wiped off the planet with a meteor tomorrow, it would make zero difference practically, (laughs) uh, not much more than a rounding uh, in the CO2 a pot, mm. But I do worry about some of the measures we're taking. I mean, I, 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 I think you tweeted, retweeted something of mine yesterday, Mike, about the real CO2 costs yes. of battery electric vehicles. Am I comfortable with children in the Democratic Republic of Congo digging up cobalt for our batteries in the West? Mm. I'm not comfortable with that. There is a better way. And I think when you put together some of the, the entirety of CO2 uh, from production of these materials... The manufacturing the vehicles to then recycling them and never mind where you're going to get the electricity from i'm not entirely sure you've got a co2 saving no. it's just as you well, say well that is the irony i mean
2: as you say no. um, the, the combination of the of the sort of um, the, the versatility or otherwise of the, some of these materials the, the 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 situation as you say where you've got slave labor under the age of 10 going underground becoming poisoned by by chemicals in order to bring these things to the surface so that very rich people in the West can drive around a Tesla and park it somewhere near Clapham Common. I think it's quite odious. It's quite disgusting, actually. You think some of these um, woke types who go on about the Green Brigade and how the climate needs to be saved at all costs would care about that, but they don't seem to. Uh,
0: No, I, I don't know quite how we've got ourselves into this situation um i mean 2050 where that figure come from why not 2040 2060 2070 it seems to me that india and china are more looking at 2070 Mm. i'm sure that's a a manana date that will never come if you if you want my my honest opinion about it but we need a different way because we cannot have inbuilt high energy costs for the uk that's bad for our you know domestic people paying more than other people in the world but it's particularly bad for our high energy intensive businesses Mm who will simply offshore and those jobs will go with it. Yeah. Surely better to keep them onshore and to keep the jobs and the tax flowing, which uh, we, you know, we'll, we'll want and need to keep public services going. But we, we seem to be going down a very, very strange path. And uh, I and others are trying to get this government back on track yes. to some common sense uh, and conservative values, because conservative values can win, will win, and I want to be in post for a long time to
2: come yet. Well, that was going to be my final question, Craig. How confident are you that the Prime Minister at least has looked, if at nothing else, his popularity rating and has seen that by far and away the best way to get it back and to get it above Keir Starmer's is to be more conservative, to be more traditional, to be more uh, commonsensical, if you like, and to do the kinds of things that you and your colleagues are urging him to do?
0: Well, I, I think polls are very powerful persuaders on on Prime Ministers. They always have been um obviously we've been through a bad patch i think that's saying it quite nicely uh over the last couple of months uh, I won't go into all the details of them but there's been a few events that have been you know, negative in people's perception of uh the conservative party uh we can get that back on track with some common sense as you say and i think this is one of them um, my honest view is reality will come to play in the end just as you know i might go on about the, the my, my time during the, the brexit years reality and common sense one on uh, the COVID issues. I'm involved with the COVID recovery group, common sense and reality one, and I'm hoping on net zero, some common sense and reality will win once more. But as you know, Mike, I'm a big campaigner on all these things and uh, I'm not always right, but I certainly hope to be on this
2: one. Well, you're a lot more right more often than Chris Whitty is. That's, I'm pretty, I can certainly say that to you. Craig, thanks very much indeed. Craig McKinley, Conservative MP for South Thanet, and of course, chairman of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. And He's absolutely right to talk about what conservative values are about. He's absolutely right to say that Net Zero is a crock right now, and there are so many holes in it that if you poured water in, it would all leak all over the place. You wouldn't be able to save one iota uh, of the water you put in. And so, let us take your calls on this as well. 0344 1000. Chris Whitty needs to go. I know you will back me on that because he has simply uh, got everything wrong and most important of all he got it really wrong just before Christmas and that caused a lot of damage to a lot of people and he needs
1: to pay for that the independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio
0: the independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio
2: let us say a very very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens Peter very good morning to you
1: Good morning. And a happy, a happy Russian Christmas. Yes, last, yes. I noticed that's so, still going on.
2: Yeah. What, what is that about? Because I'm fascinated by your knowledge of Russia. And last week, last week, you refused to wish me a happy new year. Uh, so I, uh, without showing any form of uh, of sort of, you know, pettiness, will say a happy Russian Christmas back to you.
1: Well, Russian Christmas starts on the 7th. They, they still carry on by the old calendar, uh, which we abandoned in the 18th century. And good luck to them, I say, but that's when their Christmas is. They, the Orthodox Easter is also different from ours. But the great thing is, if ever you are in that part of the world, uh, a few years ago I was in Kiev uh, during the the Orthodox Christmas, uh, and I'd already had Christmas in the West, and I thought, well, it, 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 won't, it can't possibly replicate the atmosphere of Christmas Eve. But in fact, it did. And I have often thought that if I had the money and the time, I would actually have two Christmases and have the first one here and then nip over there and have another one. It's a time of year I'm very fond of, but this I, to avoid wishing people Happy New Year, which is a thing I just don't believe in, uh, I will always respond by wishing them Happy Christmas, which uh, runs out in the West on, 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 the, on, on the 6th, but yes. begins immediately in, in Russia on the 7th. So happy Christmas to you, anyway, whichever one you like.
2: Thank you very much indeed. Let us talk first of all about the state of play, um, because I was sort of musing over the course of the weekend where I was, lots of pieces being written about how badly wrong Sage got it, how all of their doomsday predictions didn't come true. Um, and I thought to myself, well, Chris Whitty was right, um, right in there with the best of them talking about tsunamis of infection. Uh, Boris Johnson was talking about tidal waves of infection. It has turned out, thankfully, we should say, um, that Omicron apparently is a much less uh, harmful form of the virus. The South Africans all the way through were saying, we don't know why Britain is getting so carried away with this. I mean, should it not be the case that at the very least, Chris Whitty is asked to come before the beak, as it were, with his slides and with his lectern, and he stands there and he, and he explains how he
1: managed to get it so wrong. I think it would be a good thing. I think a lot of people have distinguished themselves by exaggeration in the past couple of years. And their exaggerations have cost the country a great deal Mm. uh, in terms of, uh, amongst other things, missed medical treatment for non-COVID illnesses. Mm. And I I really would like to see some sort of admission that this has been overdone. And this, uh, this in particular has so swiftly proved uh, the, to, to, to be mistaken, exaggeration, that the sooner people put it right, the better. And people do make mistakes. I'm not in, not generally in favour of, of demanding that people be removed from their posts or stuff like that. People do make mistakes. And the, the, the way in which they then distinguish themselves is by saying, well, look, yes, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Hmm. Uh, and I will try not to do it again. And if people do that, which is generally an act of both courage and good manners, I'm prepared to say, good, right. So let's have a bit of contrition among the people who tried to make out that this was a terrible threat. And that would be a good thing. There does seem to me, very slowly, to be an awakening from the sleep of reason, which gripped the thinking and media classes of this country nearly two years ago. People are beginning to say, well, uh, hang on a minute, maybe the Great Barrington Declaration had a point, maybe targeted uh, action would have worked better. Uh, or certainly or to say, uh, maybe there isn't any evidence that lockdowns did any particular good, because if you look at the whole world, you won't find any congruence between Mm. the severity of lockdown and the number of deaths. So I I just feel any opportunity to get people to think, uh, to accept that they may have been mistaken, has to be a good thing. And I I very much hope that they do so.
2: Yes, because we do have a bit of a, a sort of culture now of making apologies so that they make everything better. And I'm not that keen on, on that side of things either, you know, because when people make apologies which are clearly just being made for the purposes of staying
1: in a job, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. But I think... Well, the, it depends the, what the t- terms of it are, isn't it? Yeah, it the, does. There's, 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 a, there's a thing called a non-apology apology, which is quite similar to a non-denial denial. It's dressed up to look like an apology, but it usually begins with the words, I am sorry if, hmm. and then goes on, if you... Uh, basically, I'm sorry yes. if you were upset by right. what I said. Well, it, 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 that's not an apology. No. Uh, that, that, that's something entirely different. So, but a clear you know, recognition. We got this wrong. Everybody gets things wrong. Mm. There is no perfect saint among us who never gets anything wrong. We got this wrong. We'll try not to do it again. I would just like to see a lot of that. And also this whole language of misrepresentation, which, which really needs to be dropped. The, the fundamental one is, is the use of the term case, uh, to describe a positive test, as if these people were actually ill, which in many cases they were And the, the other fundamental one is, which is now at last undergoing some scrutiny, is the, is the previous insistence that anybody who was detected with a COVID positive test uh, must, uh, and, or, 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 or died having contracted COVID, had died because they had COVID, or were in hospital because they had COVID. Whereas in so many cases, they were in hospital for other reasons, mm-hmm. and they died for a multiplicity of reasons, which might have included COVID, but wouldn't necessarily uh, wouldn't necessarily be right to say it was the real reason. This kind of, 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 of frankly, uh, confusing the public with, with things presented as if they were clear facts when they're actually much more complicated has to come to an end uh, for us to get back to some sense. And the whole obsession with testing uh, that, that, has, that has gripped us now for two years. If you search for people uh, who will test positive for COVID, you'll get them. If mm. you don't search, you won't. What previous civilization has gone around spending billions of public money looking for people who are technically ill but actually aren't? Mm. If they're ill, they can say so and yeah. tell their doctors.
2: And is there, do you think, a sort of philosophy behind all of this? Because I was talking to Sir Hugh Pennington, who's one of the relatively sensible professors up in Aberdeen, um, about this whole situation. And he said, well, of course, you know, the government's job and the NHS's job is to try and prevent those deaths which are preventable. To which I said, well, the week ending December the 24th, 2021, week 51 on the calendar, there were 828 deaths from COVID. There were 13,000 deaths plus uh, altogether in that week. And it just seems to me that six and a half percent of any total is a very small number.
1: Well, it's also if that's their concern, why is it devoted solely to Covid anyway? Right. If this government were really as concerned about saving life as it claims to be, uh, it would, for instance, have much, much uh, stricter efforts to, to discourage people from smoking cigarettes. Uh, And it would also be trying a great deal harder to reduce the carnage on the roads. Mm. And it has done quite a bit in both of those, but it hasn't done anything like what it's done in its attempts to to prevent the spread of COVID, which I have to say has also largely failed. And if if they really are that concerned to save all the lives they could possibly save, there are many, many other things uh, which they could actually do quite effectively, which would save, I think, more lives. Uh, and more lives at at a younger stage too. So if that really is what they mean, then let them show it in all aspects of medical treatment, and particularly in the most effective form of medical treatment of all, the prevention of disease uh, by by public health education uh, and by encouraging particularly the thing which is is incredibly beneficial to health in this country, namely exercise, which at the moment millions of people simply don't do, and as a result they contract terrible amounts of illness because of it, we do nothing about that by comparison. If we did th- those things as intensively as we've conducted the anti-COVID campaign, I'd believe them, that that was their main concern. But this, the funny thing about COVID is it gives people the opportunity to boss us around, confine us in our homes and tell us to stop going to work, take control over the economy and politics in a way never previously seen outside wartime. And that seems to me to be why it attracts certain people.
2: Well, that's right. I mean, just looking at the Novak Djokovic case, I don't know what what side of the fence you're on there. But I was talking to somebody over the weekend who said, you know, one thing that we have learned through this pandemic is that basically governments can do anything. You know, when they used to in the past say, we can't do that uh, or, you know, that's too expensive or, you know, people would never stand for that. We now know that basically they can do anything they want.
1: Well, it certainly looks like it, doesn't it? I mean, I I haven't I'm I'm not particularly interested in sports. I barely knew who Novak Djokovic was before a couple of weeks ago. But it does seem to me that he went through quite a lot of, of, of detailed discussions mm. with the Australian terrorist authorities and the Australian migration authorities before he arrived, yeah. and that the way he was treated uh, begins to look rather shocking. And, and the, the initial response of the authorities—I mean, uh, the last I heard after his the, the, the government's case against him seems to have collapsed mm. in a hearing—was uh, was one of sort of petulance. Uh, either he's allowed in, or he's not. Either the fact that he's actually had the disease, cancer, or it doesn't. Uh, and if, it, if, if, if the authorities said before that it did, then surely they to stick to that, or the, the whole thing is completely lawless. Right. I, I, I do think there's something really peculiar going on here, and, I, and you, I don't want to take any side of something which I'm not totally and utterly briefed mm. on, but you just feel, again, that authority is being used with a kind of self-righteousness mm. and an unwillingness to be questioned, which really Shouldn't be tolerated in a free society.
2: No, it really shouldn't. And interestingly, I mean, an awful lot of the people in Australia themselves had said, "Well, we don't want him coming in because you know why should the rules be different for him than they are for us?" And by the same token, you get that that same kind of attitude that you get from some people in this country who say, uh, who talk about the vaccines as if they're some kind of silver bullet, when they're clearly not. You know, as if to say that anyone who doesn't have it is in some way dangerous. And there is also this kind of pervasive, rather unpleasant stream of consciousness which is going on in all countries about uh, people who are for whatever reason deciding not to take the vaccination
1: well one of the great joys of life is disapproving of other people and <laughs> you, can, you can generally get a, a pretty good following by encouraging others to disapprove of other people and one of the other great joys of life is telling people they're wrong <laughs> and this seems to combine here into a wonderful streak of new style puritanism where millions of people can look down on their neighbors for not having done the right thing, yeah, and tell them that they're wrong. So you can see why it catches on, can't you?
2: Well, I suppose so, but it's unpleasant, and I wish it wouldn't. Well, it's very on. unpleasant,
1: but but there it is. It's, mm. it's it, it, it is it is a, 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 a what people don't admit to a lot of the things they enjoy. Mm. But disapproving of other people is something people enjoy a lot.
2: Yes. Lots of people disapproved um, last week of the decision by the jury in Bristol, uh, which I know you wrote about this weekend, and you took an interesting um, kind of um, opinion on it, as, as I would expect you to. Uh, you're very much in favour of juries.
1: Well, completely, and, and without uh, w- without any equivocation, I think that the jury is one of the great protections of, of liberty in this country. And uh, I only really understood this when I, I wrote my book, The Abolition of Liberty. Gosh, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming up to 20 years ago. Mm. And I, I looked into this and realized how little I knew. I mean, for instance, most people in this country have no idea that hardly anywhere else in the world outside the Anglosphere actually has independent juries at all. Uh, they're pretty much unique to the English-speaking countries. Uh, and they grant us an amazing thing. In any other country, a trial is an assembly of state officials deciding how guilty you are. Mm. In in the Anglosphere countries, where there jury juries, a trial is an actual contest between the defense and the prosecution. So they're saying everyone goes on about how people are presumed uh, innocent until proven guilty. Uh, In this country, that is actually true because of the jury. On the continent, it isn't really true. Uh, It's true in theory, but in practice, anybody who's accused of crime is pretty much assumed to have done it. They're usually bunged into prison immediately for long periods of pretrial detention. They're expected to cooperate with their own prosecution. Uh, and the, the trial is, as I say, an, an event where the state decides how guilty they are rather than whether there's any question mm. that they might not be. It's very rare for people to get acquitted under these systems. And the great difference this makes is that you can't really have political trials. The government can't use criminal trials to bung its, its, its opponents into prison the way it can elsewhere. Now, there's a consequence of this. And it's bound to happen that a fair number of people who are accused of crimes will be acquitted by juries, even though most people think they're guilty. Uh, I, uh, people say, well, th- that's a pretty high price to pay. I say, I don't agree. Mm. Everybody benefits from the immense defense of liberty provided by juries. Going back to some amazing trials uh, back in the 17th and 18th centuries where this was established, and we should treasure it And any attempt to whip the mob up against juries because they come up with the occasional unusual and puzzling verdict seems to me to be very dangerous. We've already lost in this country. Thanks to, to, in my view, foolish public outcry, we've lost the right to silence, which is guaranteed in the American Bill of Rights, and we've lost the very, it's very sensible old rule against being tried twice for the same offence, which is a huge protection against oppressive government. But yet, because of public outcry in that case over the Stephen Lawrence case, hard cases make bad law, uh, and they always will. Mm-hmm. And, and people should should always remember that the, the jury trial and the, is is the key to, to the true presumption of innocence. And the absolute basis of our real liberty. Mm. Never, ever let anybody attack it. However much it may cost, the the, the, the more the verdict uh, disappoints or displeases you, the more careful you should be about this. Mm. You have to put up these things. All principles have cost.
2: Okay. Peter, stay with us because we'll talk some more about that uh, coming up and also the the, the wherewithal uh, for various different people now to take that particular judgment and do with it what they will. Uh, We'll talk about the police as well, a bit of marijuana too. Uh, Lots more with Peter Hitchens next on Talk Radio.
1: the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio
2: and we're talking to Peter hitchens as well uh, we were just talking about the jury uh, trial the the, the the misgiving i have i suppose about this particular case peter is that there will be people and we've already had one case with extinction rebellion where a judge actually um found some um, some extinction rebellion vandals guilty but then proceeded to let them off on the grounds that they had a good cause similarly there will be others now who will see both the Bristol case and the Extinction Rebellion case, and go, well, if I have a good cause, then presumably I can just break the law and get away with it.
1: Well, they shouldn't bank on that uh, because the jury may not accept their claim. Mm. Uh, this this decision set no precedent. And it, it was a particular one. And the, the there's a lot of interesting discussion among lawyers about what the judge said to the jury in the particular aspects of yeah. it. But well, I remind myself in the middle of all this, again, that when the Soviet Union was falling I rejoiced at the tearing down of statues of Lenin and uh, Felix Dzerzhinsky and all kinds of other thugs and, and, and horrible people. Mm. Uh, and I can quite see that uh, the, the, the tearing down of statues is a, is, is a thing which, which will sometimes happen, reflecting various changes of opinion. I, I don't, so it, I find it also hard. I, I don't see why I should be corralled into the position of saying how much I regret that the statue of a, of a rather nasty slave owner was pulled down. I think conservatives should be wary of of rushing to the defense of these graven images anyway. And what do I care? Again, if if I live in Oxford, if a statue of Cecil Rhodes, who was a sort of pirate, uh, is is taken down. It isn't a big deal to me. Uh, I would rather these things were taken down by agreement. But it's a thing into into which conservatives shouldn't be trapped. Because really, why should we? I, I don't approve of slavery. Uh, I, I, I don't particularly approve of the way Cecil Rhodes behaves in Africa. Why should those who have, have so-called right-wing views be allowed to be portrayed as defenders of slavery? It's, it's a, Again, the whole subject is one in which, but that in which the problem, of this country is being corralled into positions they really probably shouldn't be holding. But I don't think that the trial sets the precedent. If people just go and tear down a statue, they shouldn't expect to be acquitted just because another jury no, is acquitted. I don't
2: think that, so. that jury,
1: and it won't necessarily be repeated.
2: And you can feel, you know, sympathy for them, but it doesn't mean that the law should be altered, in my view. And I think the problem as well is... No, that can I is... say something
1: about that, though? I mean, the people who really, who really need to be questioned most of all on that is, is what is laughingly called the police force. And it's yeah. quite clear that if a demonstration is preparing to do something of this kind in the centre of a major city, then the police have a duty, simply a duty to order, uh, to prevent it. But what do they do? Where were they? Well,
2: they took the view, they <inaudible> said at the time, that we didn't do anything because we didn't want to make it worse, which is hardly the point of view of the police, is it?
1: Well, no, it didn't seem to me to be a particularly, uh, how shall I put it, um, creditable attitude to take. No. But I think that to, to then uh, that seems to me to be the, the far more worrying failure of the justice system. Uh, that there was no order mm. in the streets of Bristol that day because the police weren't no. prepared. And then to what it to. led
2: to? What it led to later, and I think it was later in the week, was a sort of mass riot, a mini riot, anyway, outside a police station where several police vans were set on fire. And you could link the two and say, well, there was a direct um, um, connection between the police doing nothing when the Colston statue was hurled into the into the river, um, and them thinking, well, we could just go and attack the police station now because they won't probably won't respond.
1: Well, who knows? I, I, I My general view is that the police in this country, I used to ch- join in with the, the, the mantra that you know, there were lots of nice people in the police, which undoubtedly mm. I mean, there are. There are plenty of nice men and women in the police uh, who, who you'd like to meet, but, uh, and the, the, a lot of them still did a good job. But I, I, I've given up on the latter. However nice you are in the police, the, the nature of the organisation prevents you from doing a good job now. My belief is that the, the we should train a new, proper, local... A responsive police force is dedicated to enforcing the law. Mm. Yes. And when, as soon as that is done, we should disband the existing police forces and useless, failed, mm. uh, nationalised industry which should, which is no longer fit for any sort of purpose. They just aren't police anymore, and it's time we recognise that they're unreformable. And yes. They should
2: which Let's. brings us with, with a very short amount of time left, I'm afraid, just about a minute or so, to, to, to move on to the subject of marijuana, which is one of your pet um, peeves. The fact that, as you describe it, and I can totally agree and attest to, uh, you can't walk around London anymore without smelling it.
1: Not just London, either, no, yeah. But, it's, it, it, but the thing, what is the great thing is that I think after, after what feels like about 300 years of saying to people, look, uh, there is no war on drugs, the law hasn't been enforced, so don't. Don't say that the the current situation is a result of a failed war on drugs because there hasn't been one. And the other point, this is the worst possible moment to be legalizing a drug against which the evidence is piling up that it's closely linked, its use is closely linked with severe mental illness. And the great joy I'm having to see the Times newspaper, which has previously been among the liberal voices on this, increasingly giving coverage to this stuff, which otherwise I'd be... Shouting into the empty mm. space for year after year after year without any help or response at all. I do think it's possible that, that both public opinion and media opinion are beginning to turn because so many people are experiencing in their own families the catastrophic consequences of marijuana used, particularly by the young, and it is being used by very young people these days. I'm sorry to say. Mm.
2: Well, it is very much universally available. That seems to be the trouble. But, Peter, we're out of time, so thank you very much indeed. Once more, we'll talk to you same time next week. Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday there uh, talking an awful lot of sense on some subjects. Uh, you can't always agree. You don't have to always agree. The point about Talk Radio is, is that you don't have to all be singing from the same hymn sheet. There are many hymn sheets, and there are many hymns, and there are many opportunities for you to tell us what you think. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I don't know if, like me, you've noticed the price rising uh, of almost everything that you now do. I mean, I went and filled, I think I said this last week, I went and filled up my car petrol the other day, um, and it cost about 75 quid, when it used to cost about 60. And that is rather a big increase. I mean, that is 25% of an increase in the cost of fuel uh, from literally a few weeks ago. Let's talk to Mark Littlewood, Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs uh, and find out what he makes of it all. Mark, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Mike. Good to be with you. Yes, good for you. you to be here with us as well. I mean, there seems to be kind of unbridled, crazy price gouging going on i mean i don't know why suddenly everything has gone up we keep hearing you know various stories about well it's a much more expensive world now containers are costing more money to bring across uh, from china and everything uh, basically has gone up in price but is there actually another reason why is everything going up in price there are quite a few reasons mike and it's a little difficult to disentangle
3: them all I think you could argue that there are some short-term price hikes because of supply chain problems brought about by COVID. That might just be a bump in the road. But I don't want your listeners and viewers to take uh, too much comfort from that because the underlying position is pretty grim. Mm. Inflation is back, quite possibly with a vengeance. This is in large part because the government has chosen to print vast sums of money over the recent years. And Mm. sooner or later, that feeds through into price rises. But Mike, you were mentioning fuel going up, general cost of living going up. The the big reason behind this is government action and intervention and taxes, which are extraordinarily high, Uh, not just on energy bills, but uh, we've now had three years of the sugar tax, for example. Uh, Alcohol, cigarettes taxed extraordinarily highly. A squeeze on the cost of living for your average household is first and foremost the cost that the government is imposing upon you, and we now have a total tax take in the UK that is the highest it's been since the Clem Attlee socialist government in the immediate aftermath of World yeah. War Two. When they were when they were putting the,
2: when they were putting the NHS together.
3: Yeah, exactly right. Extraordinary that a so-called conservative government is taxing us at almost exactly the same rate as Clem Attlee's post-war. Socialist government, it really is extraordinary. And my big worry here is that too often um, people are pointing their finger at the private sector. Like you mentioned, I know, fuel, but let's look at domestic energy, mm. say. I mean, you've said that's going to go up. It is going to rise quite substantially this year. Well, it seems to be blaming the energy companies is what politicians want to do. But But how about conjuring with this statistic? If you look at the average household energy bill, the amount of that bill that the companies are taking in profit is a mere 10th, 10% of what the government's taking in taxes and levies. So if your bill's high, you want 10 times as much blame on the government as you do on the profiteering companies. So I think the government's now got to seriously reset. I've got a very simple two-pronged strategy. One, stop doing stupid things that increase the cost of living like sugar taxes and levies like that. Two, Look at ways you can actually bring prices down. Uh, We are now Brexit Britain. We can not only strike free trade deals with the rest of the world, but we are now in control of our own tariff Mm. schedule. Why are we still imposing tariffs on things like bananas coming into Britain? It's not as if Britain's got a banana-producing industry that we need to protect (laughs) from foreign competition. So let's take some steps to actually get prices down, food bills down, And let's uh, keep a beady eye on the government whose interventions are continually putting prices up and making it very hard for an average income household to get by.
2: And it's not just the fact that they have been borrowing massive amounts of money in order to cover all the costs of COVID and furlough and all of that. It's the fact that they don't, as I said earlier, have a clue about how to make money. All they know how to do is spend it. And there's a piece in The Times uh, today by Gareth Davis, who's from the National Audit Office. He just talks about how they have yet still to learn the lessons of how to be an efficient uh, spender of public money. You know, we saw only last week, I think it was the Justice Department, who have apparently lost something like three or four hundred million quid in the course of a year due to a lot of failed projects. And they're just so inefficient, you know? Well, that's absolutely right. Unfortunately, my view of this is
3: that's a, that's a feature of politics and big government, not really a bug. Mm. It's normal that money is wasted in this way. Mm. Um, the, the great economic theory, there's only four ways to spend money. You can spend your own money on yourself, in which case you're very conscious both of price and quality. You can spend your own money on other people, in which case you're at least very conscious of price. You can spend other people's money on yourself, mm. in which case you're at least conscious of quality quality or you spend other people's money on other people. And that's what the government does. That's what the state does. And it tends at that point that you rather lose any focus on either Price or quality. So waste, I think, is 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 embedded in the system. The the best way, if you really want to get the economy going, is to move to much much lower taxes. Absolutely ridiculous. Now we're moving to a situation in which government spending accounts for not that far off 50% of all spending in Britain, and is ludicrously high. It was about 70% in the Soviet Union. Uh, so we are at least below that. But. but towards well into the 40s and towards 50% Mm. is extraordinary. Uh, If you want efficiency, you're best to leave that to the functioning entrepreneurial private sector as much as you possibly can. And unfortunately we're uh, eating into that through taxes and regulation and have a bloated government that as you rightly say, Mike, is prone to waste, prone to inefficiency. Little wonder that the economy is not growing at the sort of pace that you and I would like to see.
2: No, but it's growing for some people. I mean, I think we heard on the news Aldi are saying they had a record Christmas. I think plenty of the supermarkets did very well throughout the course of the pandemic. When I'm looking at some of the prices that have gone up and I just sort of shake my head. Stork baking spread alternative to butter. It's not something I buy, um, but it now costs £1.50 apparently for 500 grams. That's up 32% year on year. Mm-hmm. Lurpak lighter blended butter. Um, up 22% to £3.66. Heinz baked beans up to a pound, 18%. I mean, why has it become more expensive to make baked beans, for heaven's sake? Well, here's, here's I
3: think, one of the underlying problems, Mike, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, I think these numbers are likely to get worse, not mm. better in the coming months. Uh, if you have a government that has printed money to the extent that, we, that our government has since the financial crisis, we give it the rather cute technical term quantitative easing and although I'm calling it printing money it's not literally rolling off the printing presses it's all now done by computers Mm. and adding numbers onto computers but if you continually increase the amount of sterling that is around in the country, then prices rise as a consequence. If you double the amount of money in very in very simple terms, you would expect prices to go up. So it's not so much that it's costing a lot more to make a can of baked beans. It's that sterling isn't worth what it used to be mm. because it's not as scarce as it used to be. So we're finally, I think, facing the consequences that chickens are coming home to roost of all the money printing we've done and inflation oftentimes can act a little bit like shaking an old-fashioned ketchup bottle you shake it and shake it and shake it that's the equivalent of printing money it takes some time but then bang, it comes out in a huge splurge, just mm. like ketchup can do and go all over your plate. And I'm afraid we're gonna see that. And if you do start to get to I'm not an economic forecaster, Mike, but those who are say we could even be facing double digit inflation, ten percent being the standard rise in prices yeah. of all products across the economy. That really is a cost of living crisis because if you're struggling to get by at the moment, you don't expect your salary to go up very much. And it's 10% across the board when you're looking at you know, energy, cloves, butter, baked beans, And the rest, then you're going to have a lot of people who, in normal circumstances, if they weren't taxed that hard, that heavy, could get by, are going to really, really struggle. And the blame here is not with the private sector. It's fair and square with the government.
2: Yeah. And presumably because, uh, you know, inflation is rising at such a rate, um, they don't have any control over it because there's not much they can do, is there? Because interest rates are so low already. Um, What can they do?
3: Well, I think interest rates are really now extraordinarily low. It is true we have an independent Bank of England. They're not supposed to be uh, influenced by, you know, political considerations on a day-to-day basis. They have a very clear mandate, and that's to set interest rates to try and keep inflation at 2%. Mm. There's a little bit of a margin for error. They're not in big trouble if it's as low as 1% or as high as 3%. But we're way beyond that band now. And we've been having cheap money, easy money, very low interest rates. So it's extremely easy to borrow, very cheap to borrow and not much reward for saving uh, over recent years. I think we should see interest rates go up. Now, that's a decision for the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. But they have to write letters apologising basically to the Chancellor of the Exchequer if they're not sticking to their inflation target. And they've only got one job they are only supposed to consider inflation. Inflation is now well beyond 2%, and it's time for interest rates to get back to something like normal. And I think that would have, in the short term, obviously people might feel the pinch in some ways, but on the over the longer term, that's what a flourishing economy needs. You need to reward people who save. Their savings don't just sit in a bank account somewhere, they're used to invest uh by companies and businesses that investment brings long-term rates of return but with interest rates at naught percent what's the point of saving just consume what you can at the moment or borrow beyond your means
2: well that's the other point i was going to get to because people's credit ratings have gone through the roof you can now buy a car that you can't really afford you see more and more people driving around in what look like pretty expensive cars and you think blimey you know you must have borrowed quite a lot for that and people are living off their credit cards right
3: yeah, that that is a big problem, Mike. Uh, I mean, we, one, I mean, talk about a very small silver lining on the cloud, but of course, over the course of lockdown, people have managed to save more money mm-hmm. because we've been legally prohibited from doing things that we would usually spend money on. But you're quite right, that's a problem. But again, it's what you'd expect to happen if interest rates are so ridiculously low, I mean, as a very rough rule of thumb, you'd expect interest rates to typically be, I don't know, maybe about 2% higher than inflation. So if inflation was 5%, maybe interest rates should be 7%. And if interest rates were anywhere close to that normal level, well, it wouldn't be so easy and cheap to buy a flash new car on tick. I mean, at the moment, it is cheap to do that because interest rates are so ridiculously artificially low. We can't get back to normal interest rates in one fell swoop. But I think we should be looking to get back there slowly and steadily over the next two years. That would be a good corrector for the economy. It brings, I think, much more rationality into the economy. It means you get much more sensible investment and savings decisions than we're seeing at the moment. And while that's not the silver bullet to make sure that long-term growth is established, it's a kind of bronze bullet. And the sooner we can get there, the better.
2: And is this affecting every country in Western Europe, would you say, at this point in time? I mean, my understanding is that energy costs are certainly less than ours, uh, but I don't know what else is going on there.
3: Yeah, it, it is pretty much a Western world problem. It's, it's right to say it's not uh, exclusively uh, a UK problem. The United States of America, in particular, facing very, very similar problems to the UK right. uh, and again. Uh, their government has undertaken the same, in my view, fairly reckless public policies, printing vast numbers of dollars. Mm. Uh, I think I was told that half of all dollars ever printed in the history of the United States have been printed in the last seven years. That's absolutely extraordinary Mm. and highly, highly inflationary. So you've got very high inflation in America, uh, the highest for generations. Same much applies in, in Europe as a whole. Yeah, there are differences in each case. But you know what, Mike? The problem is across Western Europe and the Western world as a whole, including the UK, nearly all governments have made the same mistakes. Mm. They've taxed heavily, they've regulated heavily, and then they're surprised that the economy doesn't grow in the way that they would like, and they bail themselves out by printing money, making the problem worse. So the problems are the same everywhere, because pretty much most Western governments have have approached public policy in the same way pretty stupid
2: fashion and jacob reese mogg has called last week for uh, rishi sunak to, to reconsider that 1.25 uh, percent national insurance rise if they don't i mean and we know that they've said that it's for the nhs but we clearly wouldn't expect them to spend it anywhere near the nhs it will just it will go into the black hole that is the treasury right but i mean if they weren't to put that on uh, how damaging would that be for them
3: well, I mean, I, I think that they should actually start rowing back from these sort of taxes and hikes. I mean, if you remember, Mike, the uh, the, the whole, the, the grand theory behind this national insurance rise was to crack the social care problem. Yes. Well, once you once you poked it a bit, actually, no, the money's earmarked for the black hole of the NHS for three years mm. to deal with the COVID backlog. I think it's very unlikely that in three years time, the NHS will suddenly go to the Chancellor of the Exchequer and say, you know what, Chancellor, we've got enough money now. We don't need this money anymore. Please earmark it for social care. Mm. So it does seem to me just basically be another general rise in taxation. And the government's got to do a lot, lot more to get public spending under control. There's no sense of priorities here. They want to spend more on everything. They've got a million priorities. And that means more and more spending. I think we've got to start getting taxes down. That's the route to a healthy, growing economy. But that means getting public spending down a lot. And so far, unfortunately, this government have shown neither the appetite nor the courage to make some of those decisions. No,
2: I mean, I can't remember what it was like when we last had a chancellor who said no to to departmental heads because Rishi Sunak doesn't seem to be able to.
3: I think that's right. I mean, if you read the
2: kind of Westminster tea leaves
3: a little, Mike, the suggestion is that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, is somewhat more worried about public spending, but the Prime Minister himself Seems to be uh, carefree about mm. the whole thing. There's virtually no problem uh, that the prime minister sees where the answer isn't yet more public spending. Yeah. So I think there's a bit of tension between the chancellor and the prime minister. But if that's true, if that is the correct reading of what's going on in Westminster. It would be uh, enormously helpful if Rishi Sunak stood up to Boris Johnson. Mm rather more often and rather
2: more firmly. Yes, I think so. And also, when you look finally at the um, the testing stories that have been going around this weekend, suggestions that you know we can't continue to supply free tests forever, does, there is a cost to that, which of course there is, um, everybody talks about, oh, it's a free test. Well, it's not really a free test because we're paying for it. Um, and you, 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 you kind of, I continually become astonished at how few people say, well, yeah, let's save some money, let's not be doing this. It's not about whether it's good for the economy or bad for the economy, or good for the, for the state of the nation the fact is we just don't have a bottomless pit of money
3: that's absolutely right mike and i get very annoyed when these things are described as free whether it's the national health service is free yeah. or free school meals mm. for kids or free lateral flow tests they're not free right. they're simply unpriced yes right that's actually what they are they're unpriced they are expensive and look uh, i'm no medical scientist but my reading of the data is we we can bring this sort of mass testing to an end. We're living with Omicron now. You mentioned a few minutes uh, before this interview, Mike, that Boris says that we should be getting back to normal in March and getting to and learning to live with COVID from March. I say let's do that now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's get on. Let's get back to normal immediately and the testing which in in my view is a racket i've been in and out of the country a few times in recent weeks it's cost me an arm and a leg i've spent i think nearly as much on tests uh, having to test at various places i have on flights and all of this is to deal with uh, omicron which doesn't seem to be uh, extraordinary lethal at all no. so i'd I, say so let's bring the mass testing to an end let's get back to normal and let's get the economy ticking along nicely again
2: yes mark very good to talk to you thank you very much indeed mark littlewood the director general of the institute of economic affairs making an awful lot of sense but also painting a rather dark picture of where this could all go it's all very well to say well prices are just going to keep going up well somebody's going to have to stop that from happening some people's energy prices have already doubled in a year and they could double in another year That's not sustainable, in my view.
1: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: I've heard a message coming over the airwaves from um, Montecito, California. And uh, I just wanted to pass it on to you because not everybody has heard it. And uh, it goes something like this. Harry! Harry! What's going on, Harry? Have you seen those pictures? Have you seen them? Huh? Have you seen the pictures of Kate? Huh? What pictures are they? Yeah, the pictures of Kate. She's 40. She looks fabulous. Fabulous at 40. I don't know why they're doing it to me. Why are they doing it? What do you mean? Well, why are they making me look so stupid? Because I'm not fabulous at 40. Why haven't they done pictures of me? Being fabulous at 40. Oh, well, uh, are you 40? I'm not 40 yet but I haven't got any hair. Come on, Harry! Harry, fix it for me! You can bet your bottom dollar, I would say, by any stretch of the imagination, that sometime this week, um, Her Majesty Meghan Markle will, of course, come out with some kind of great picture of herself, and maybe with Archie. Don't forget, by the way, that many people have now made more money for charity than uh, Meghan and Harry put together. You can find them all over the place. They've only raised 50 grand for the Archie Wealth Foundation. So let me tell you, there is lots... And lots of pre-publicity coming uh, because you're going to see is you're going to see Meghan and Harry not being very happy about the fact that Kate Middleton looks absolutely fabulous. She is, of course, um, the wife of Prince William, who is one of the heirs to the throne. And you'd have to say that if you were sitting there in California wondering what to do next, you'd be absolutely spitting feathers, which is no doubt what they'll be doing by saying, why? Isn't it me? Why on earth is it not me? Talk
0: radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.